Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. I've known Brad and Sarah and actually the whole crew for about nine years. And the reason why Brad is here is because he's a friend. Um, he is a gifted preacher, but also more than that is he has the ability to impart to us two things that I've been praying for this week. One is a deep love and devotion for Jesus, without which anything that we do is just simply a dead work. Um, and then secondly, the ability to help us understand the importance of when and how we should be speaking about Jesus. So I'm going to pray for Brad and uh, let him loose. Father, I want to thank you uh, for this man, uh, but more than that, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I want to thank you that your word has shaped him and your Holy Spirit in him has made it alive to him. And I want to pray that we would, um, that we would receive that. I want to pray that you would give him unction, that you would give him anointing. And I want to pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. I pray this in your name and for your glory, Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you. It's good to see you all. Welcome, welcome. My name is Brad Sarian, as he just said. Um, and yeah, it is a bummer. My wife and my kiddos aren't, aren't going to be here. We did kind of, Sarah needed to be with, with the church. We're, we just started something very similar to what you guys are doing right here uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and so her leadership is very much needed there. And we even asked the kids after a year of not really being able to be with their friends at the church. We're like, hey guys, wanna, you want to come with us? new friends, new place, or stay here? They were like, can we see our old friends? I was like, all right, deal. We're, we, we'll, we'll let that roll this week. But um, yeah, Nick and Karen are just such a blessing to my wife and I, and really have played a pivotal role in our church planting story. Um, nine years ago, my wife and I, we moved down to San Diego uh, from, we we're living in the San Fernando Valley, moved down to San Diego, uh, where we began helping a church plant restored down in San Diego with Andy and Jackie Rogers. I don't know if any of you guys have met them, but um, Nick and Karen were, were gracious to us to kind of just help us what it looks like to lead a church. We were kind of coming out of um, mega churches, some churches that we had been a part of that, that we didn't see um, fully alignment with some of the philosophy of ministry and theology and some of those things. And, and Nick and Karen were gracious enough to show us that, that we knew what we didn't want our church to look like, but we had very little understanding of what we wanted our church to look like. And so when they came down for one of our gatherings down in San Diego nine years ago, uh, Nick preached and we all went out to dinner afterwards. It was a Sunday night gathering. And we go out to dinner afterwards. I remember this moment so clearly. We're sitting eating and Karen says, can I ask you guys a question? It was like, oh, exactly. It, it, it was my wife and I and then Andy and Jackie. And, and, and we're like, yeah, sure. What's up? And she goes, can I ask you as the eldership team, why all of you were sitting in the back during the entire gathering? It was like, I, I don't know. Like, like, we were youth pastors, and you sit in the back when you're a youth pastor because you want to make sure you can catch the kids making out and texting. And so, so that's kind of just all we knew. So we're like, I don't know. That's, that's what we're doing. They're like, well, you know, and then Nick went on and said, well, we think that elders generally should lead from the front. You, you had a new person in, and he was preaching, and, and if, if I said something kind of crazy— the people in the church should even be looking to you guys. Like, are you guys nodding your head? Yes, or disagreeing? Or, or what are you guys doing? And so we had a phenomenal conversation. They've helped us with so many things over the years, with things that have honestly stuck with us for nine years, things that have shaped us as a church. And all that to say that at any moment while I'm preaching today, you see Nick or Karin doing this. <laughs> Just ignore what I say for a few minutes and then pick back up 
with me. But um, it is. It's, it's fun to be here. I'm excited to dive into the text. As you guys are talking about Alpha and inviting people to come to know Jesus, I know that there are many of you who love Jesus deeply here. Uh, and I know there are probably several of you, uh, maybe many of you, that, that aren't sure where you're at with Jesus, where, what, what he is, what he's about. Um, and so today, I just really want to lift our eyes to see him more clearly and just trust that he's going to do um, the work that he wants to do. Early on in my ministry, I thought a lot about evangelism was about tactics and tips and having the right words at the right time. Um, and there's a, there's a time and a place for that. It is very important to know the gospel, to be able to explain the gospel and, and understand how to answer difficult questions about the problem of evil and hell and those kinds of things. It's, it's important. But more important than that is a person who's just passionately in love with Jesus. I don't know if any of you watched the Final Four. I'm not a huge uh, NCAA guy, but I, I watch championship games. I could just watch any type of championship, any sports game. I'm a total bandwagon, but I pick a team and I'm like, I want to see them win. And when Baylor won the Final Four, there was no huddle after the game where they had some coaches around and teaching them how they're going to celebrate. Hey, guys, we just won. So here's what it looks like to celebrate a national championship. You're going to raise your arms, and you're going to scream, and you're going to hug each other. No, no, no. They, they won, and they screamed their faces off. They jumped on the ground, dog pile, kissing each other. Forget about COVID. Like, it's just game on. And I think that should be somewhat of a picture of what evangelism looks like in the Christian's life. That it isn't learning all of these tips and tricks. Oh, I'm an extrovert. Oh, I'm an introvert. Was, no, 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 I'm passionate about Jesus and the love of Jesus overflows in me to where I talk about him. I talk about him a lot. We see this in the early church. I don't know how many evangelism 101 trainings there were. I mean, the early church, it was early, early church. You have people who have seen the risen king. They're not like, all right, now go tell someone that you just saw Jesus crucified and risen. They're like, I've got to tell everyone I know. And, and, and the authorities, the religious leaders and the governing authorities start to go, if you keep telling people about Jesus, we're going to kill you. And they're like, well, you killed our friend Jesus and he's doing just fine. We will be too. And this love for Jesus, this passion for him overflows and it changes the way we see people. Paul says we used to see people naturally, but now we see people with supernatural eyes that God loves every single person and it is our calling to both demonstrate and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And so I want to look at a passage today that will hopefully stir our affections for him, that will help us see him more clearly and ultimately see people more clearly so that we wouldn't continue to walk around in apathy. So if you have a Bible, Revelation 3 is where we're going to be. I know you weren't expecting Revelation, but... That's happening. So, Revelation chapter 3. I usually preach out of a different version, but I grabbed an ESV on, over here. So, I'll give it back, I promise. <clears throat> um, so, we're going to be looking at a passage in, in Revelation 3. And, and Revelation is definitely a complex book. There's a lot going on. We don't have a ton of time to unpack all of it. Even if we had a lot of time, I would not be able to adequately unpack all of Revelation to you. Um, but in the first couple of chapters, chapters 2 and 3 particularly, um, John, the Apostle John, he, he gets this vision. Jesus appears to him and has him write some letters to some churches. Some churches that were in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And Jesus sees these churches accurately. And so John is going to write a letter to these churches telling them how they're doing. There's seven letters Five of the letters are quite challenging. Uh, there's quite a bit of a rebuke and a challenge in those. 
And then two of the letters are very encouraging. They're very positive. The churches that are going through persecution, but staying faithful. And so the church that we're going to look at today is in chapter 3. It's the church at Laodicea. And it's not the most positive letter, unfortunately. But, but I think it matches so much of what I'm experiencing and seeing in the American church, especially coming out of a year of COVID. Uh, COVID was difficult for, for, for a lot of us, right? I know it is a kind of a weird thing. For some people in our church, they're like, it was the best year of my life. I didn't have to go to work for an hour and a half drive and stay home with family, all that kind of stuff. But for another large part of our church, it was hard. Loss of life, loss of jobs, just difficult, difficult situations. And so out of a year of COVID, I think many of us are still limping back in, trying to figure out what does the church gathered look like? What does healthy discipleship to Jesus look like? And Revelation 3 is going to kind of give us a little bit of a wake-up call. So let's dive in. Revelation 3, verse 14. I'm just going to read the whole thing, and then we'll kind of come back through and, and, and check it out. We read now the ESV. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, this is Jesus speaking to John, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Those are some cool nicknames for Jesus. Yeah, you ever meet someone? He's like, yeah, you can call me the amen. <laughs> like, oh, deal. Jesus is like, this is who I am. I'm the amen. I'm the beginning of God's creation. I'm the faithful and true witness. Verse 15, to the church, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel to you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A lot going on. There's some intense stuff going on in there. And there is so much grace wrapped up in this passage. And I want us to see both. We, we have to see both. And so what does this lukewarm living mean? What, what, what is he talking about when Jesus says, you're, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're, you're lukewarm? There's a couple of clues of, of, of what this lukewarm living is. One is in the title of Jesus. Uh, one of the New Testament commentators I was reading this past week said that in each of the letters, when Jesus starts the letters giving kind of his, his nicknames, his names, it directly relates to either the encouragement or the rebuke to that specific church. And he says that one of his names being the faithful and true witness is kind of a hint at what lukewarm living is. It's the opposite of that. 
It's being a, a false witness. It's being a non-true and a faithless witness. And this is what the church at Laodicea was doing. They were, they were apathetic toward Jesus. They weren't living on mission. They weren't being faithful witnesses, showing the world what Jesus is like in their words or in their deeds. And then ultimately in verse 19, we see it even maybe a little bit more clearly. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. To be lukewarm is to not be zealous. Zealous is a passion. To, to be lukewarm is to lack a passion for Jesus. Lukewarm living is when you lack a passion for Jesus that ultimately gives the world a false witness of his supreme worth and beauty. It's when we are so caught up in everything else that the true message of our life isn't Christ crucified and risen, but my job is awesome. Have you seen this show on Netflix? Look at how cute my kids are. It's a proclamation about everything and anything other than Jesus Christ. It's the first and foremost passion in our lives. It's those of us who maybe say we're Christian, but many of our friends or coworkers have no idea we are. I heard a pastor recently say that if Christianity became illegal in America, most American churchgoers would not need to worry at all because there'd be no evidence to prosecute them. That's lukewarm living. That if it came out tomorrow that it's illegal to be Christian here, you're like, I'm good. No one knows. That's Jesus' rebuke to the church at Laodicea. You're lacking a passion. You're lacking a fire for me. Showing the world my beauty. Showing the world my glory, my love, my truth, and my justice. This is what lukewarm living looks like. And I know there are non-Christians here, some of you who don't believe in Jesus, don't know Jesus. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe this is your first time hearing about Jesus. And I am convinced that one of the biggest obstacles to people becoming Christians in America is that they are surrounded by lukewarm Christians. And it is such a non-compelling story. There's so much more compelling out there. They're like, so if I become a Christian, I'm going to look like you. Okay. Sure, what else? But when we experience men and women who are passionate about Jesus, who live for him and his kingdom first, we show the world that he's worth it. But Jesus shows us even not only what lukewarm living is, but what causes this lukewarm living. Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Yikes. Talk about a lack of self-awareness. These are not emotionally healthy disciples. They're like, we are crushing it. And Jesus is like, you're blind and pitiable and dead. No, that, that, that lukewarm living is caused by a lack of true awareness of who you are and who Jesus is. And that blindness is often caused by the blinding reality of wealth and self-sufficiency. We're rich. We don't need anything. Jesus goes, no, you're poor. You need everything. That our self-sufficiency 
creates a blindness in regard to seeing ourselves accurately and seeing Jesus accurately. I believe in counseling. I believe therapy is good and needed, gospel-centered. But I don't know the last time I've heard any counselor go, I don't think you're seeing yourself correctly because you've got too much money in the bank. (laughs) Jesus is saying this blindness because of our self-sufficiency and wealth. He says the same thing in Matthew 6. That if you can see money clearly, you can see everything clearly. A year and a half ago, I had my first bout with vertigo. It's awful. Anybody ever had vertigo? Yeah, it's horrendous, right? Even anxious talking about it. But, but, but in that moment, it was the first time I was at a funeral and I was talking with a new person that I'd never met. And all of a sudden, just the world starts spinning like mad. And I was like, I need to sit down and just fall to the ground. And for the next 12 hours, I couldn't see straight. The world was spinning radically. It was not safe for me to drive home. It was not safe for me to trust my eyes. I could barely stand up. And Jesus is saying that your wealth and your self-sufficiency causes this blinding effect that causes you to not see things accurately, one yourself and one not Jesus either. And I know that's difficult for us to hear because some of us here especially, you're like, no, man, you don't don't know my story. I, I struggle financially and I get that. I know some of us live paycheck to paycheck, and it's difficult. But, but Richard Stearns, who is the president CEO of World Vision, he wrote a book about a decade ago called The Hole in Our Gospel, and he talks about American wealth in a way that's quite challenging. He says, let me start with some good news for you. You are rich. We're rich. And the church in America is rich. And now I'm sure I know what you're thinking, that I'm wrong, and you're not rich and neither is your church. But bear with me, because wealth is always measured in relative terms. Brace yourself for the good news. If your income is $25,000 a year, you are wealthier than approximately 90% of the world's population. If you make $50,000 per year, you are wealthier than 99% of the world's population. Does it shock you? Remember, of the 6.7 billion people on earth, almost half of them live on less than $2 a day. If you don't feel rich, it's because you are comparing yourself to people who have more than you do. Those living above the 99th percentile of global wealth. It's because we tend to gauge whether or not we are wealthy based on the things we don't have. When you realize that 93% of the world's people don't own a car, your old clunker starts to look pretty good. And so this is not to shame us or to make us feel bad of like, oh man, but, but this is to help put into perspective simply the fact that we probably don't see ourselves or Jesus accurately simply because we live in Southern California. Money is not a bad thing. Money is neutral. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Money can be used for beautiful, God-glorifying things. It can also be used for some wicked things. It's what we do with that money. It's how we steward that money. But that money in and of itself, that wealth, that self-sufficiency tends to cause a blindness to the reality of the world, to ourselves and to God. I was thinking, um, don't judge me, but I was thinking of the song by Destiny's Child, Independent Woman, (laughs) right? The shoes on my feet, I bought them, right? The clothes I'm wearing, I bought them. The rock I'm rocking, I bought it. Why? Why? Because I depend on me. 
This is the anthem song of Laodicea. I depend on me. Like so many of us are not dependent upon Jesus because you refresh your bank account. You're like, I'm fine. I have no need for him. Faith, what are you talking about faith? I've got an epic 401k. I just don't have to walk in this lifestyle of dependence because I depend on me. If I need something, I get it. Jesus goes, how did you get that? With what brain did you get that with? With what hands did you make that with? Me. You're dependent upon me. And when we grasp this, we see all things accurately. So how does Jesus respond to this lukewarm living? Well, let me tell you, his initial response to lukewarm living is rough. It is. It gets good, but I think we need to sit for a few moments in Jesus' initial response to lukewarm living. It's in verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Historians tell us that the city of Laodicea was located between two other major cities, Hierapolis and Colossae. Hierapolis was known for its warm springs, its hot springs that brought like a medicinal effect. The people would travel to Hierapolis just to sit in the hot springs to heal their bodies. Colossae was known for the cold, refreshing drinking water. And Laodicea, even though it was a very wealthy city, so wealthy that they rejected Rome's help rebuilding after an earthquake in the 60s, they didn't have good water in their city. So they built aqueducts from both Hierapolis and Colossae to bring in this hot water and this cold water. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And people who traveled to Laodicea who weren't used to it would take a sip of it and literally spit it out of their mouth. They're like, ugh, everything looks so pretty, but your water's awful. And Jesus uses this analogy that they would be very familiar with and goes, this is what you're like. You're not like a phenomenal espresso or an amazing cold brew. You're like a lukewarm cup of coffee. And you just take a sip and you're like, ah. Like, like Jesus has a, a gag reflex to lukewarm living. Like, like when we go days, weeks, without spending time with him, he says, it makes me nauseous. Like when you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is reach for your email or your Instagram or CNN or Fox News or whatever it is, instead of the word of God and time with him, he goes, it makes me sick. After a long, hard day filled with stress and anxiety, when you run to the fridge or alcohol or Netflix or whatever it is, instead of time with him, casting your anxieties on him because he cares about you, because it makes me like want to vomit. He is not apathetic about our apathy. It, it genuinely makes him sick. And I think we need to hear that. Yes, this year has been difficult. It's been tough. There have been reasons that have prohibited us from walking deeply and faithfully with Jesus, I think. Church gathering, all those types of things. It's been hard. But it's not an excuse for lukewarm living. 
But praise Jesus Christ that this passage doesn't end there. If it ended there, like, we're hopeless. But Jesus keeps going. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So his initial response to lukewarm living is nausea, it's sickness. But then he goes, but come to me. Stop going to the world to buy what you're looking for. It's only found in me. You need your shame to be covered. It's not going to come through Amazon. It's going to come through me, clothing your nakedness and your shame. You need to see rightly. Come to me. I will give you eyes to see all things clearly through my word. You want to be rich, truly rich? It's not by working 90 hours a week. It's by letting my spirit live in you, refining you, making you new, a person of love who experiences richness in all of your relationships, one with him and one with everyone else. He pleads with us. He doesn't just look at your lukewarm living and go, get out of here. He looks at our lukewarm living and passionately pursues us. He loves us too much to let us keep walking away. He seeks us out. He seeks us out. He continues Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He gives us a nice reminder here. He's like, well, that was intense. He's like, I'm saying it because I love you. And, and maybe some of us had parents or friends or spouses who do that, like say something really mean and they're like, it's because I love you. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's telling us the truth. He's going, I can't let you stay in your apathy. I will not let you stay in your Luke." warm living. I say this to discipline you because I love you deeply. We're living in a culture in the society where discipline of any sort, any type of no or any type of offense is just the worst thing you can possibly do. And so we read a verse that Jesus is going to spit us out and that it's because of his discipline that he loves us. We're like, that's not the Jesus I know. I remember years ago when we were still living in San Diego. Uh, my boy was probably three at the time and my little girl was two. And we lived right across the street from a park. So we, we practically lived, I think we spent more time at the park than we did in our house. It was just a, a beautiful park that we just hang out with. And at five o'clock, every day I get home from work, we'd go immediately, they'd be meeting me at the door and we'd just take them over to the park. We'd hang and all the kids would just show up at five. It, it, with dad or mom, whoever it was. And there was just a crew of these kids that were just like stoked to all see each other. There was one kid though that was just wild. And I love wild kids, but this kid was wild and like biting and hitting and kicking. It was like, man, that, my boy would be like, daddy, he's here. I'm like, I know, just love him. Do your best, man. In your three-year-old wisdom and love, like just try. But it was gnarly. And we got to build a great relationship with her. We had her over dinner and the kid and, and just the neighbors. And so we're, we're, we're loving them well, trying to show them Jesus as best we can. And it was after a few months, the mom came to me at the park. We were all playing, they were talking. And she said, hey, I noticed that your kids, like, when you say it's time to go, they don't throw a crazy temp temper tantrum, and, and they don't really, like, bite and kick the other kids. <laughs> it was like, well, you know, sometimes they do at home where you're by no means have figured this out. You're two years old, three year old. It's, it's, it's definitely challenging. She's like, but what do you guys, like, do? How do you, how do you guys do that? And I was like, uh-oh. Um, 
Well, she's like, do you guys like discipline? I was like, I don't know. What are you like, yeah, we do. We discipline. And, and, and so I just kind of walked her through like what we do as parents. Not perfect, but this is just kind of what we've been taught and, and what we've seen is really beautiful and loving that this is all done in love. It's never to be done in anger and all this stuff. So we kind of walked through the process. And she's like, oh, man. Yeah, I could never do that. I was like, oh, okay. Um, she's like, yeah, I think that like we shouldn't tell our kids no because it could cause like low self-esteem and trauma. I was like, well, your son is causing trauma on all the other children in the playground. So like an occasional no is totally good. Like, like, like let's, let's tell our kids no. Um, that, like they like playing in the street. We need to be able to go, no, honey, I love you. That's why I say no. And, and a few weeks later, she came to me at the park. She was like, it works. I was like, I know, because this is the way we're parents. We're supposed to lovingly discipline and help our children see what is good, true, and right. That's one of our main responsibilities. And this is what Jesus is doing as a loving father. He's going, I see accurately. You don't. Let me help you. I say these hard things to you because I love you. It's not to shame you. It's not to hurt you. It's to save you and heal you. Would you listen to me? And then most beautifully, he says at verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus passionately loves us. So much so that the more I've chewed on this passage, he just looks like a desperate. I mean, he won't stop knocking on the door of our apathetic hearts. Some of us, it's been weeks. Some of us, it's been decades. And he keeps knocking. He's like, anyone, if you hear me, I love you Open up and let me in. Let me heal you. Let me save you. Let me show you what truth and beauty and love are. And this isn't just a cute analogy. It's not like God in the, metaphorically in the heavens, he knocked on our hearts. He proved it by becoming a human. He didn't just knock from heaven and hope that we could hear through the clouds. He came down, born as an infant, lived perfectly in our place, was not apathetic, but was filled with zeal for the Father's glory. And at the cross, he was treated as pitiful, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. As he took on our sins, offering us forgiveness, forgiveness that we did not deserve, but forgiveness that we needed in order to have him. He stands at the door knocking, not a dead crucified king, but a risen king who stands knocking and going, let me in, I love you. Will you let me be the king of your life? Will you let me be the one who makes the shots, calls the shots for you? Not you. Would you open your heart? One of my favorite illustrations of this is from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. He's quoting a friend's parable, George MacDonald. And he says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. 
God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. He's not satisfied in your guest room. He wants the whole thing. How many of us have said, yes, Jesus, you can have my life. But what I mean by life is ultimately my Sunday mornings. Maybe an occasional Monday night. Maybe a percentage of my income. Maybe a little bit of a relational aspect that you can speak in on. Jesus goes, I want all or nothing. I want to be the king of your finances. I've proven it through my death and my resurrection that I'm trustworthy. That I know what's best for you even when you don't. I want to be the king over your sexuality. Where I make the final call about what's right and wrong. I want to be the king over your marriage. Over your parenting. Over your career. Over your future. I don't want to be put into this side room where you kind of call me out as your butler when you really just need something. He says, true healing, true salvation comes when you bow your knee at the foot of Jesus for everything. And it is only when you grasp his relentless passion for you that you'll become passionate about him. It isn't shame or guilt that's going to make you passionate about him. It's not like, oh man, I need to just get out there and evangelize more. Good luck. It's when you grasp that Jesus Christ won't stop evangelizing your heart. He will not stop until he's finished. In the words, I think it was Jack Miller who said, I need the gospel preached to the unreached people groups of my heart. Jesus won't stop until he's done all of it. He wants to be the king over all. And when you grasp that your reality was poor, pitiable, blind, and naked, but he's clothed you with his righteousness. And he saved you. He's given you his, his spirit so you could see clearly that his love never fails. That we bring that message to our coworkers. We bring that message to our friends. We bring that message to our neighbors, our family members who don't know him. We proclaim the good news to him, to everyone we know. Not because Alpha told you, not because Nick told you, but because the Spirit of God is alive in you and your coworkers and neighbors and your friends and some of you sitting here today are actually poor, pitiable, blind, and naked and you need him. And some of us out of pride, we're like, I'm not that bad. We'll continue rejecting him. We'll continue saying, no, he doesn't see things accurately. Only I do. And others of us, it's because of shame. We're like, but Brad, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how messed up I am. You don't know the things that I have done or am doing. And Jesus goes, I know. I literally just told you you're poor, blind, pitiful, and naked. I, I see you far more clearly than you see yourself. 
There's nothing that you could discover in here that he hasn't already seen. And there's nothing that you could discover that he doesn't want to cover by his radical grace and his love for you. And it's when we get this that we begin to be people who proclaim this. Not on our good days, but every day. Because it's a message of grace. It's a message that his kingdom is where there's healing. His kingdom is where there's life. His kingdom is where there's truth. And everyone needs to know this whether or not they feel it. And we begin to be a people who are passionately in love with him. A few years ago, my kiddos were having a rough day parenting. If I told a story where we looked good, here's the story where we looked bad. My, my boy was messing with my little girl. He was playing the game, his older brother, where he'd put his hand in front of her and not touch her, and she was crying, Daddy, he keeps touching me, and all that kind of stuff. And we were getting ready to go to a birthday party for one of their friends, which they were very, very excited about. Birthday parties in our house is just kind of fair game. Like, you just get to eat as much sugar as you want. So they love birthday parties. We were getting ready to go to this birthday party, and my little girl screams again, Daddy, he did this. And so I go to the hallway where they were, and I say, Hey, buddy, if you touch your sister again, you are not going to the birthday party. And the moment I said that, I was like, that's crazy. I mean, this is, this is going to really test my parenting if he does, because we're probably going to this birthday party. So this isn't a good space to be in, but sure. So I walk out 30 seconds later. I know. You knew it. You knew it. Yeah. She screams. And I'm like walking back, like, What's gonna, what am I going to do here? And I walk back, and they're still in the hallway. I don't know why they're playing in the hallway but they're in the hallway and she's crying and I look at my boy and I said, did you touch your sister again? And he just stands there and his head is low and I look to my daughter, I said, baby, did he touch you again right after I said not to? And she looks up at me and she goes, I don't remember. <laughs> and my boy looks at me looks at her, goes, she doesn't remember. She doesn't remember. I was like, get in the car now. One of my favorite realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ has chosen not to remember our sins anymore. That when he looks at you and I, he says, I don't remember. Hebrews tells us this. This is the passion. This is the joy. This is the freedom we walk in as believers. We don't wake up and go, how did I do yesterday? Is today a good day to tell other people about Jesus? You wake up every single day and go, he's chosen not to remember. He's chosen not to remember yesterday because of his scandalous grace and his love poured out for me on the cross of Jesus Christ. And my neighbors need to know. My friends need to know about a love that can save and heal. A love that does not hold my past against me but sets me into freedom so that I can walk in love and passion and truth. He's the king who loves us and invites us into his story so that we can go and proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of his love and truth in this world, a broken world that is desperate. This year has proven we are desperate for Jesus. Science is a gift. I'm grateful for it. But science cannot heal all of the brokenness and sin in our world. Only Jesus can. Let's proclaim him until he returns. Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your pursuing grace over us. That this passage doesn't end with just spitting out, but is seeking out Jesus. God, I pray right now for the men and women here, for those who don't know you. As the passage tells us, what, well, what do I do? How do I become passionate? We repent. We turn to you, Jesus. We turn back to you. We begin to think rightly about you. We trust you. And it's in that that we become passionate. It's in that when we begin to see rightly the world and who you are and your kingdom come. Jesus, I pray for those who have never repented that they would do so today. And instead of living where they themselves have been king, whether they think they're doing a great job or they know they're doing an awful job, Jesus, today would be the day where they finally turn to you and go, you have it. You're in control. Would you forgive me? Would I trust you with everything? And for my brothers and sisters, maybe where repentance is the millionth time today, over the course of decades, where it is a daily turning back to you, that you would stir that up in us today, that there would be no guilt in us repenting and turning back to you, but only joy, only joy that we were seeing unclearly, but now we see you, the King of glory. And now that we see you clearly, we see all things clearly, Jesus. Spirit, would you fill us up so that we would overflow with your love and your truth? Would we need less teaching on practical tips of evangelism and just be so radically in love with you that we just talk about you? Not in a weird way, but just out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks and you have full reign over our hearts, Jesus. We love you. We trust you. Would you save many in this city, in this country, in our world, Jesus Christ. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.